I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and I am today with Professor Richard Wynne-Jones, who is Head of the Wales Governance Centre, which does a great deal of work on the Constitution of Wales and related matters at Cardiff University. Richard, where are you from originally? Well, that is actually quite a complicated question. I was brought up on on this morning in a village called Penmanid, which gave the world the tutors. There's not much else to say about Penmanid, but I was born in, um, actually, Los Angeles. That's very dramatic. Lived for a period growing up, we lived in Australia, basically Anglesey, but it's a slightly more complicated story than that. How did you come to be born in Los Angeles? Well, obviously my mum was there, is the the obvious (laughs) comeback. So my father's Liverpool Welsh, my mum's from uh, Denbyshire, but they actually met at a St David's Day dinner in Vancouver. My mum was a nurse and had emigrated out there. My father was at UBC. And they met in Vancouver, uh, University of British Columbia. There we are. Uh, and then they met there. And then uh, my father was at UCLA, in, uh, and I was actually born at Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood. This <laughs> <laughs> is, is my birth certificate. Yeah. So I don't think too many people know that. No. Well, so then, then uh, they decided that they wanted to raise my brother and I uh, in Wales, and so. Uh, a job was offered in Bangor. There was a, a, a professor in Bangor, a biochemist, who was who, who kind of scoured the world for Welsh talent and tried to get them to come home, uh, which is a sensible strategy. And uh, I, I think I discovered recently that my my father's pay in Bangor was twenty five percent of what he was getting in in Los Angeles. But I'm quite pleased that they came home. I have to say. Otherwise, you'd be speaking with a rich American accent. Yeah, and they yeah. have now, now, Weinstein. now, of course, I have no accents at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, was it a political family? Yes. I mean, a scientific background. My there's kind of an interesting. Uh, it's a kind of quick background on my father's side, and my father was, you know, great devolutionist, and was uh, I kind of written about this somewhere, you know, was heart, heart, heartbroken by 1979, uh, and I suspect if we hadn't been the age that we were, so my brother and I would have been going into secondary school at the time. I think that quite a possibility they could have re-emigrated actually after the 79 debacle. You know, both my parents have always been uh, kind of active culturally in Welsh language kind of culture and my father in particular active in terms of schemes for developing Wales and you know that was uh, something that was very important in terms of now energy is his kind of key thing but generally kind of environmental concerns and constitutional development of Wales. So yeah, political, but you know, scientific and my mum was a nurse and a health visitor. So I then kind of pursued politics as a as an academic area of study. Because it's slightly different, isn't it, from environmental um, studies, which obviously your father is an exponent of, or he's into. Yeah, no. Science. So I, so I guess that in terms of my, I was interested in Wales, and I got interested in the. I was very active in the language movement, and I guess the way I got developed the kind of political consciousness was being involved in Cymdeithriaeth from a the age of about fourteen, fifteen. You know, going to court cases and that whole thing uh, in the early. 
in the early 80s and I got interested in international relations, the period of the Second Cold War. So actually my academic career, I have two kind of parallel academic careers. I was did a lot in international relations and there's a whole branch which I won't bore you with, something called critical security studies which had its origins partly in Aberystwyth and I was very involved in all that and probably my most cited publications are still international relations. So I, I was really interested in international relations and then when kind of fast forwarding to about to 97 and the referendum, I was then on the staff in Aberystwyth and it seemed to me that it was important that devolution, that there was something going on in academia that was a kind of critical friend, I guess, producing stuff that would inform debates, challenging kind of received wisdom, nostrums. So I then switched after about 1997, started getting more and more interested in, in constitutional development in Wales. And in, the idea was in Aberystwyth and then in Cardiff that we'd try and produce a body of knowledge about voter attitudes initially, more recently it's about, been about the Welsh economy, the prison system in Wales, the justice system, all this kind of stuff, which is about trying to inform political debates and thinking actually there needs to be kind of academic interest in this stuff. And that's been that's been the last, yeah, that's been the last 20 years, I guess. I know, I mean, even going back uh, 20 years, there began to be, at the time of devolution actually happening, yeah. a huge number of uh, conferences which were being held both in Wales, uh, other parts of the UK, mm. but also in Europe. I mean, yeah. I remember going myself to a number of these yeah. conferences and people were really very excited. Even academics in England yeah, were yeah. pretty excited about the developments that were taking place. Well, you know, you don't actually need to justify... Uh, I mean, I, I've always believed that academia should be about trying to inform debates and trying to you know there's there's a kind of pure academia which is fine and needs no justification but also if you can take kind of really good work and then present it in a way that's accessible and try and inform debate then that's the ideal model and of course when you had devolution you've got a new political system evolving you've got new institutions potentially you know a relatively small space about which you can get reasonably good data basically from a political science or an academic perspective, the chance to look at a newly evolving system. That's a real privilege and real opportunity and I that that's and you can actually get really good publications. There's a sense there has been a sense that or oh, if you're interested in Wales, it's parochial, it's but actually you can publish in the best journals in Wales. And we've proven that and use Wales as a case study for broader issues. And actually that's how you get credibility in academia and you need your credibility in civil society and in in the kind of political world, and you need your academic credibility, and you need you need to maintain both basically. To what extent do you think that the beginning of devolution, the politicians who got involved, were aware of the nature of the project they were involved with? And to be honest with you, I, I think the 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 answer has to be it depends. Uh, for, for me, it was the people with the longest kind of historical and brought this comparative perspective who were most ready for what was going to happen. Because it wasn't great, you know, the, the constitutional dispensation was a complete mess. You've written a lot about this, but, you know, the, I was going to say we, t we started off with one hand bound behind their back. I'd say both legs bound and both hands bound. I mean, it was a, it was a mess, 
and also the record of newly established political institutions is generally poor. I mean, you think, you know, just think about those who know that American history will know that the first years of post-independence America were not the heroic age, but, you know, it was, it was pretty awful. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Norway. The first years of Norwegian independence were hugely disappointing. The German lander, which we now see as being, you know, a, a model of what regional government can be, you know, it took a long time to develop credibility. I think those people who had a kind of longer time scale uh, who knew that it was likely to be tough were kind of realistic, but then other people were going in thinking, okay, you know, it's going to be everything is going to be new, shiny, and it's going to work well. They, they were bound to be disappointed, to be honest with you. Well, yes, perhaps one of the problems was that um, because there was always going to be the likelihood of a close vote in 1997, I think it's the case, would you agree, that. Um, sometimes the, the promises were overblown in terms of what devolution could deliver in the short term. And there's all this stuff about economic powerhouse, yeah. etc. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. It probably was oversold. But also, I mean, if you look at the public attitudes data, there was also, in a sense, it didn't really matter what people were being sold. The expectations on both sides of the devolution divide in '97 were so radically different. So those people who were against thought it was going to be the end of the world, even though that this thing didn't have the powers to, to bring about the end of the world or anything like it. And on the other hand, people who supported it thought it was going to be, you know, Tirnanog, the land of milk and honey, was going to be opened up, uh, showing actually that the way that people viewed the referendum was nothing, was actually very little to do with rational expectations of what it could or couldn't do. It was about essentially about identity, who you felt you were, and expect it, and I, you could probably say that Brexit is is another very recent example of the same kind of phenomenon. It's not about what's being promised. It's not even about knowledge. It's about who you think you are and where you fit into the world. Throughout the course of devolution, I think um, many people uh, who are in favour of it mm. would probably take the view that Wales has very much been seen by the UK government and the Whitehall establishment as the poor cousin of Scotland. Yeah. Why do you think that is? There's a brilliant line in Andrew Ronsley's book uh, where he says that in, in Downing Street in the Blair period, uh, Wales was seen as... Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not sure this is politically correct, but in Downing Street, Wales was seen as Scotland's uh, smaller, uglier sister. And I think that that's absolutely... You know, that's, that that is, is true and remains the case. I, I mean, I think, you know, that the... It's realpolitik, and it's very, very crude. Northern Ireland, there's always the threat of violence. Um, I remember a colleague, a former colleague in Aberystwyth who'd moved there from, from a Northern Irish university saying, uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, looking around Aberystwyth, said, what you need in Aberystwyth, Richard, are more car bombs. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, Basically, if there are car bombs, there will be a leisure centre on every corner, there will be nice new council housing, the, the British state will spend a lot of money because there's the threat of violence. Do you know what? A few months ago, I did a podcast with Paul Murphy, yeah. who'd just written a book, yeah. and there was a very telling moment when he said, uh, obviously he was involved as the Northern Ireland yeah. Secretary, and before that as the Minister of State, in brokering the Good Friday Agreement, and he says there was a there was a moment uh, for him where he looked around the room, yeah. and he came to the conclusion: 
I'm the only person in this room who hasn't murdered anybody, <laughs> which is along the same yeah, lines, yeah. isn't but, it? You know, and then so so Northern Ireland, there's there's this you know there's there's this um, threat of 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 violence, um, and Scotland has a threat of exit, which is a, a very credible uh, threat of exit. Now Wales, in comparison, what's our kind of what's our strategy? What's our card in this? It's the you know the force of the the better argument, and you know. Carwyn Jones, when he was first minister, and Mark Drakeford, since he has been first minister, have made all these thoughtful speeches about reforming the union, and and you know nobody nobody cares, uh, nobody listens. Wales is too small to count electorally, really. Um, so yeah, we don't really we we have no you know, we don't have a, a a Trump card. We don't really have a hand, I guess. Uh, it, at the table, and and it's and it's a huge issue, and it's a, actually it's a huge issue for Welsh politicians of all political um, stripes. I, I noticed uh, after the budget this week, Chris Bryant, the, the the very unionist MP for for Honda, bemoaning the fact that Wales hasn't done well uh, out of the budget. The Conservative, new Conservative MPs, you know, they're still in the first flush of, of but you know, this this is a this becomes a problem for for unionists. It's also a problem for for nationalists because lots of the Welsh, um, you know, the Welsh public on the whole doesn't believe that we can stand our own feet. So their their kind of call for exit does not appear credible. So everybody, you know, everybody in Welsh politics is stuck with this kind of fact that we are poor, we are politically. A backwater, and so then there's a danger that Welsh politics just becomes a kind of stasis, and that we end up in a, in a kind of a, a kind of stagnant pool in the river, and the river is flowing, and we're just kind of you know I don't know what the I'm, I'm thinking trying to think of the English word for merdur, but I can't at the moment. But maybe maybe our listeners will will forgive me for that. I mean, can you see that situation changing? I can well I mean I don't know I think I think we, we are in a in a political moment which is which is extremely unpredictable and anybody who confidently prophesizes what's going to happen I think is is being incautiously brave but I think what I would say is that clearly Brexit changes things massively we it's now very clear that we have a UK government determined to go for what we used to call a the hardest of hard Brexits. So basically as few links with the European mainland as possible. That has major constitutional implications because Northern Ireland has effectively been left outside the Union for some important purposes and that's going to work itself out in very painful ways, I suspect. But, you know, the idea of a... Well, the promise, actually, of a referendum, a border poll is actually in the Good Friday Agreement. So it's part of an international agreement which is very difficult for the UK government to resile from at some... Uh, you know. uh, then Scotland is clearly... It, it's clearly in play in terms of a second independence referendum. All of this changes the, the dynamics for Wales. So there's that constitutional side of things. The economic side is, you know... If they're going for the hardest of hard Brexits, that has huge implications for Welsh manufacturing, for Welsh agriculture, for the Welsh economy, the Welsh rural economy as a whole. Um, there's also, um, in terms of 
I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I, I've been very struck over the last 18 months by the extent to which people who would regard themselves as staunch unionists are basically saying, well, A, if, if, if Scotland and Northern Ireland go, is the England and Wales space one we want to inhabit? David Melding called it Little Britain, didn't he? And yeah. he said, you know, I don't want to be part of, of, little, of little Britain. There's also, I think, a real sense of, well, nobody's listening to us. We're trying to make these sensible arguments about the union and nobody's listening. And nobody seems to care particularly about the economic damage that is about to be un- unveiled. And so I think that there is, especially amongst younger party activists in the Labour Party, for example, this sense that we can't go on like this. What that means, I don't know. But I think we are at one of these kind of critical junctures. And after what's happened over the last 10 years, you'd be foolish to say that we, we, we're fated to carry on in the same vein. I know it's a strange thing to say at a time of the serious concerns about coronavirus, mm. but in a sense, from a constitutional point of view, and indeed from an economic point of view, we're in a bit of a false sense of security at the moment, aren't we? Because we remain essentially within yeah. the European Union, although we formally come out, we're still in the single yeah. market, we're still in the customs union, and that's not going to change until uh, the end of the year. Yeah. How quick do you think it will be before people actually notice differences? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that there's, there's that great quote from Graham, you know, the old is dying and the new is yet to be born, and that is... That's, Gramsci. That, that's Gramsci, isn't it? And we're exactly in that interregnum. Um, to, to be honest with you, in terms of Brexit, I think that attitude... we Because this is now a cultural divide, and I mean, one of the things that I've spent over the last two or three years doing is, is working on on attitudes to Brexit as they relate to national identity. And it's very clear that, I know this has now become commonplace, people talk about English nationalism and how this has underpinned the Brexit vote in England, and you know, it's demonstrably the case, and it's much more important than anything like left behind. Or, you know, the, and because this is now baked into our sense of who we are and where, where, who, where we fit in the world and where we've come from and where we want to go, the, the 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 issue is that everybody's now reading evidence through the prism of identity, if you like, and so those people who who whose identity suggests you know uh, that Brexit is a really bad idea and regressive, they will seize on every piece of evidence that supports that, and it will it will even further strengthen their view that they were right, and then and then it's exactly the same on the other side. Of the equation, so these things are deeply baked in, and I think in those in those contexts, it takes a long time for anything to shift. And I think you know, I still believe ultimately that the material realities determine consciousness, but it's a long, long process. So I think that we are we're looking in British politics, if there is a British politics uh, in, in ten years' time, of deeply entrenched cultural war. I think the idea that we return to business as usual and politics becomes as Corbyn was hoping, it's all about class once again, or you know, or everybody just comes together as Boris Johnson would say, uh, and you know, well, let's just put all you know, Brexit is done, we'll all now come together. I think that's absolute pie in the sky. And so we're in for an entrenched period of cultural warfare. 
which in the Welsh context is particularly difficult because we are the most divided, we are the most complex, we, you know, we are, we're in a sense, the, the country which it's most difficult actually to see a way forward for in that kind of cultural war context because we span the kind of Europhile, you know, Welsh-speaking Welsh identifiers are the most Europhile group you can find in Britain. We also have, you know, lots of English identifiers in Wales who are as hostile to Europe as English identifiers in England, which means overwhelmingly hostile. And we've got various other groups in the middle. Empirically, we are the most divided on this issue. But going along with this cultural war, there has also been, hasn't there, a huge increase in um, personal venom and hostility, which we've seen both in social media Mm. and in the streets where minorities are called out and... uh, um, I mean, there's no sign, really, that that is going to go away. No, and I, I mean, certainly I'm going to be slightly optimistic for a moment and say that in Wales we have we have the kind of advantage of knowing, you know, we've had kind of, in a sense, a cultural war. We've had, we've been deeply divided on national identity lines for a long time. And, you know, maybe we, we have a, a sense of, I, I get the impression that things have been slightly uh, less venomous here. I think one of the real problems that we have in England, or one of the real problems that England has, is this kind of complete mutual incomprehension. That you know those people, the urban British, not English identifiers, view Brexit supporters as basically lumpen uh, yobs uh, who are clearly you know mentally. <laughs> they're not they're not up to standard and and then on the other side of the coin you have this notion of all these traitors remoners and that really really disturbing uh dehumanizing language being used and a sense of kind of mutual incomprehension we didn't know that people like this lived around us i think in wales we've always known that there are very very different people um around us we've seen that on the arguments about language going back to the 1960s, about devolution. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's complete pie in the sky. But I do. I think that our neighbours in England have a real big issue here. I remember being struck and quite uh, shocked, actually, uh, at Barry Island during the referendum campaign <coughs> when uh, Alan Johnson, the former Labour Home yeah. Secretary, turned up and he was in charge of Labour's yeah. campaign. Of what, or if, if we can... If we can dignify it with the title of a campaign. Well, indeed, it wasn't very successful. It was pretty bad. Anyway, he was walking along in (coughs) Barry Island and there was going to be a a sort of photo opportunity, interviews and all that sort of stuff. And as he was walking past these people um, who struck me as not being an organised gang of far-right people, but um, they were... uh, I mean, I was actually sitting on a bench next to some... Uh, pensioners, yeah. they were shouting out "traitor" okay. at him. Well, and, yeah, so maybe, you know, so maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but, but in no, a sense, not. so maybe, so but yeah. maybe the point is that Wales has exactly the same uh, problem. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I think it is deeply concerning, um, and the, and the like I said, the idea that we go back to to pre-referendum politics. I mean, we we sh- we should know from Scotland. Scotland had that big kind of constitutional moment in 2014. That big, very divisive debate about the constitutional future of Scotland, 
and Scottish politics has changed utterly. You know, it, it's redrawn the divisions in Scottish politics, and then and there's no sign at all that it will return to pre twenty fourteen business. And I think the same is why shouldn't that be the case in England and Wales? Therefore, mm. with with the twenty sixteen referendum. Well, of course, we've we've seen uh, a lot of. Um, Publicity, if you like, a lot of activity from the Yes Cymru yep. group. But on the other hand, um, there is a tiny group of people who are involved in this Abolish the Assembly mm. Party who have managed to get quite a lot of publicity for themselves out of it. Yeah. And indeed, at the uh, recent Welsh Conservative Conference, party figures were actually giving nods. Although they were not saying, right, we're going to mm. go along with this Abolish the Assembly, seemed to me that they were changing their stance um, to a degree yeah. by saying, we must take account of what these people are yeah. saying, which obvious, obviously means that they're concerned about the possibility of leeching votes to people yeah. of this kind. Um, yeah. how, we're obviously coming up for next year, a little more than a year, uh, it's time there'll be a Senate election. Yeah. Um, how do you see that sort of dichotomy playing out during the campaign? Yeah. Well, essentially, we have three-party politics, which is is my guess. I mean, I, I accept that we will have, you know, there will be abolished the assembly. We don't quite know what will happen to the kind of the Brexit, UKIP, all that space, which is which is that kind of kaleidoscope. But it looks as if it's three parties, relatively equal in size. And what I find fascinating is that all three face really deep strategic challenges in terms of what they do moving forward. And it's not clear to me what any of them actually decide is the best approach. So, I mean, you, you mentioned the Conservative Party. Um, and yes, there were, there were nods to the abolish the Assembly. In a sense, we can't let ourselves be outflanked on the right and of course we know that lots of conservative activists have never accepted devolution but but i mean but i think there's um there's a kind of more profound thing going on or an equally profound thing going on which is it looks to me as if the welshing up strategy of the last 20 years is being now abandoned so after rod richard stood, stood down we know that the under nick Bourne, they tried to present themselves as you know the the you know, a, a party that really was challenging this historical perception of them as the English party in Wales, and they wanted to view themselves as potential coalition partners, and that you know, that, and so on and so forth. And that has been a long-standing, very rational strategy, which now seems to have reached well after twenty sixteen, I think, reached the end of the road. So I, I just don't know what their where do, where do you know where do those people on 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 the Conservative benches in the Assembly. What's their strategy for being in power, for not being just the, in opposition forever and ever and ever? And I just don't, I don't know. What could they offer any coalition partner when the Conservative Party is, is you know, is saying we are the party of the union? How could they then possibly do any kind of a deal with a party that believes in independence? So the, the Conservatives are there, Labour have a real issue, obviously, deep crisis for the whole party um, they have a leader who is far less uh, popular than his two predecessors they they in the recent general election they made no serious effort to present a Welsh Labour 
kind of angle, which had worked for them in the past. So where do they go? Um, the Welsh MPs clearly pushed back on the manifesto. So all the stuff about devolving justice, which had been in the 20... Hang on, I'm losing track of the general elections now. The, 2017. The, the, all the stuff about devolving justice, which was in 10, 2017, had been taken out. So clearly the Welsh MPs pushed back. And Mac Drakeford, despite being close to Corbyn, didn't... You know, lost the argument internally. So where do they, where do they go? Do they is there a deal they can do with Plaid Cymru? Um, do they persuade Kirsty Williams and Ellis Thomas just to carry on and hope that they somehow or other can form a government? And then Plaid Cymru have got a huge dilemma because you know the the Rainbow Coalition, which which has been the the the, the kind of bargaining counter against Labour. You know, let's bargain Labour up by saying, "Well, if you if you don't give us what we want, we we go with with the Conservatives." That doesn't look in any way remotely credible. And on the on the other hand, what does a deal with Labour look like? Especially because Plaid persuaded themselves that the smaller party in any coalition deal gets crucified in the subsequent election. They, this now seems to be seen as an iron law of politics. I'm not sure it is, but that's how it's perceived. So where do they go? So all of these three parties were a year and a bit out from an election, and I've got no idea what the basic strategic calculation of any of them are, let alone can they actually deliver on a strategy. Do you think that's because you don't know what they're thinking or that they're actually in a dilemma themselves? I think and, the, yeah. the latter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't claim any kind of omni- omniscience on this stuff, but I think that these are genuine dilemmas, and it's not obvious. It's not obvious if you're working for Welsh Labour what you do. It's not obvious what you do if you apply Cymru. And the, you know, the Conservatives have got you know, Clangothlen. I was there at the conference speaking uh, in a fringe event, and you know, they were they were they were in a really good mood, obviously, but. You, you had a sense that they haven't really thought about the next election, not least because they didn't use it really as a platform for pushing Paul Davis in the way that you might have expected. I would say that Byron Davis was as prominent in the, the, the who's the chair in Wales, which isn't really a non-role, let's be honest. I think Byron Davis was as prominent in the programme uh, as Paul Davis, and you know, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, I mean, looking at Plaid, Adam Price's game plan is to take advantage of this um, uh, standing orders situation Mm. where after the election, the first um, plenary meeting, you have an election of the first minister. And, of course, last time round, initially there was a tie between um, Carwin Jones and Leanne Wood, Mm. uh, which was resolved with the Kirsty Williams, David Ellis Thomas stuff, etc. But... Um, if you had a situation where that vote was going to take place and Plaid were in second place after the election, you can quite easily see that Adam Price would be elected as the first minister, maybe, um, with, the, with the Tories voting for him. But if the Tories come second mm. and Plaid are in third place, it's inconceivable that uh, such a strategy could work, isn't it? Well, and also... Well, I think yes, but also, you know, more more fundamentally, I think that a, a strategy which is based on the standing orders and the particular, you know, that's not a strategy. You need, you know, you, you know you've got a real issue. What what is your what what's your offer in the election? How do you fight the election? What are your key? If you're applied, what are your key seats? Given that the two seat, you know, the Cardiff West 
uh, and Blaine and Gwent don't look exactly promising uh, for them. Llanelli, uh, you know, perennially spoken about, but Lee Waters is an in- incredibly impressive and effective Labour candidate, so or member at the moment. So I, th- I think they've got far bigger problems than what happens in any kind of post-election uh, votes. I think all of the parties also got big organi- organizational problems that they're not dealing with. So I think that the the three kind of the three big parties all look really flawed and weak in different ways. We're coming to the end of this now, but um, I can't. Doom and gloom, doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, maybe there's a different way to uh, have a, an uplifting end to it, which is that. Um, just a little while ago, I was looking on YouTube, yeah. as I occasionally do. <laughs> yes. I came across a very old YouTube video of you playing the drums in the Steve Eves band. Yeah. Uh, Welsh language band, yeah. uh, all, all good stuff. How did you get involved in that, uh, Richard? So, uh, um, I mentioned earlier that I got involved in politics largely through Cynddiriaeth, the Welsh Language Society, and the connection between Welsh language music and kind of politics so strong. And <laughs> I, I bought a drum kit. I, I, this is, this, I, I'm not sure I should actually say this because it's going to be used against me, but I, I used to, I was brought up in the countryside and uh, you know, lots of farming on my mam's side. And so I, I used to keep sheep, and uh, a thin sheep. I don't know if you know anything about Welsh sheep breeds, Martin. Maybe no, it's not I your don't. speciality. I used to keep uh, some pedigree thin sheep, uh, <laughs> uh, which I sold and bought a drum kit with, <laughs> and then started playing with various bands and ended up playing with well, Steve Eves, I guess, would be the. But I mean, it was kind of the umbilical connection between a kind of culture and politics, especially in the Welsh language movement. So yeah, so I played drums for many, many, many many years and that was a big part of my life and and organized gigs and you know it was a way of fundraising and it was you know it was also seen as a way of making Welsh language um, culture interesting and and exciting for younger people that you know actually Welsh language gigs were more fun and you know usually better and so yeah so that was a big big part of my life so yes there are there are various uh, YouTube videos which I'm which I Yes, with me playing drums on them. Yeah. <laughs> Have you hung up your sticks yeah. now? I, I yeah. So after um, the, I played in various bands, played with various really quite good jazz bands, and then moved to Norway for a while and was playing in a in a heavy metal cover band, and that was the last thing that it just basically became you know with with small children it just became became impractical although the children of then always chided me because they would have loved to be able to hit drums very hard um, but no so I, I stopped after the children basically okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed you know about that I have to say <laughs> Richard Wynne Jones thank you very much indeed thanks for listening to my podcast Martin Shipton Meets we'll be back for more next week